This morning's sermon text will be 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be hardened, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with, all, with everything to enjoy. They are not to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, God the deposit entrusted to you Avoid the irreverent Bible and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swayed from the faith. Grace be with you. So what do you think uh, God thinks of the rich? What do you think God thinks of the rich, those who have wealth and standing and position? How does God look at them? You know, it was Jesus who said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying a camel, multiple thousands of pounds, to get through the eye of a needle is easier than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Is God against the rich? You may be wondering right now, are we even rich? You may be thinking, I don't have two nickels to rub together. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm rich at all. You know, rich is determined by many metrics. Uh, not just the wealth. 25% of the wealth of this world is contained in the United States, which only have 4.4% of the world's population. So there's a disproportionate amount of wealth in our country. It doesn't mean we all have it, uh, but it is here. Uh, but metrics such as annual income or uh, living standard or cash on hand or luxuries enjoyed, all these things determine who is wealthy. I think it's hard to say that the vast majority of us would not be considered wealthy on a world stage. Maybe not in, a, in an American stage, but in a world stage, it would be difficult to assume that we're not rich. And if we are, is it hard to hear that? And why is it hard to hear that we're rich? Is it because it implies some motive or some responsibility that we have uh, associated with it? Well, you know, Paul's writing to the rich. Now, you know, you've, most of you have been here the bulk of this teaching, and, and, and Paul has been writing to his young protege about this is how the church is to behave. So the church, the gathered community, those with faith in Jesus Christ are called part of the household of God. So it's God's household, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, we gather here. And, and he's telling us how we ought to behave. But remarkably, in the last chapter, in the last few verses, he speaks to how the rich ought to behave, what we ought to do with our riches. Now, you know, you've already heard Paul speak just two weeks ago uh, to the rich. But do you remember what he was saying? 
He was talking about the love of money. He was speaking and warning those wanting to be rich that, hey, if that desire is, is latent within you, it's dangerous. But here he's speaking to the rich, to those who are rich. The church at Ephesus was a cosmopolitan church, had much wealth associated with it. And so he's speaking to those who are wealthy. And what I want you to see is he's not condemning the wealthy. He's not, that's an easy misread. He's not condemning them, he's instructing them. He's giving them both warnings and he's giving them wisdom. Two things to think about. He's giving us warnings. Hey, you are uniquely susceptible to these things if you have wealth and wisdom. This is how you ought to use the wealth that Paul's going to argue God gave to you. Uh, so both warnings and wisdom. Look with me at the warnings first in verse 17. You see him say, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Uh, so charge them not to be conceited. Charge them not to be arrogant. It's an old English word for arrogance, pride, conceit. Charge them not to be. Because wealth can do that. I mean, when you have more things than other people have, you tend to think higher of yourselves. The word really means to be high-minded, that your mind is higher than others. It, it, you know, pride's a temptation in all of us, uh, but particularly those with wealth, it's a, it's a temptation for. Why? Because you look at others and you have more. You live better. You live nicer. And you begin to think, well, it's my hard work. It's my ingenuity. It's my shrewdness. It's, it's my making the most of opportunities. It's the, it's the me being a better manager, better thinker. And, and so we can move in terms of kind of looking back towards us, that we get high-minded. And so Paul's simply warning, don't be proud about the wealth you have, as if you have done it all. Don't let it go to your head, but also don't let it go to your heart. Notice he says, in the next half of that verse, he says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. So don't just think too high-minded of yourself because of the things that you have, but don't begin to rest or trust in them. Don't begin to think that, well, now that I have riches, I can cure most of the problems of life. Uh, don't rest. Don't find security in them. Why? Well, because they're uncertain. I mean, the old expression, you can go to bed rich, you can wake up poor. I mean, there's moths, there's rust, there's deterioration, there's market changes, right? There's pandemics, there are natural disasters, there's thievery, think Enron. You know, th these things change very quickly. The writer of Proverbs says, do not toil to acquire wealth when your eyes light on it. It's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Isn't that true with money? It can go, it can go so fast. Now, folks, we don't need to be super educated to see this. I mean, 2008, there was a 30% drop in retirement accounts. And you think, well, yeah, but we came back from it. But we're back in it again, right? 20% now. I mean, don't you kind of feel like it's a bit of a roller coaster ride? To set your hope on riches is like building your house on sand? And so Paul's just simply saying this. He's saying that wealth... Wealth comes with a warning. It comes with a warning. And notice, though, how he warns. He says, I charge you. So Paul is commanding Timothy 
He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. So Timothy is to charge his church. I'm supposed to charge you. That word charge is used in a military context usually, and it means command. I'm to command you to not be haughty. I'm to command you uh, to not set your hope on that. Now, we live in a very individualistic age and very autonomous, and nobody wants to be commanded to do anything. And so yet I'm supposed to kind of invite all this pastoral criticism by charging you, by commanding you to do it. I mean, do you feel like your back bowing up a little bit? Does it cause you to bristle? But that's what he says, right? Why? It's so important. Listen, don't, let's not be naive. Let's not be short-sighted. Uh, no, note the nature of riches. He says, I charge you in the present age. We live in an age where it's not that wealth is unimportant. It just can't do all that we may want it to do. We tend to think money can do things that it can't do. It, it, we live in a present age. There is a new age to come. That's what Paul's reminding Timothy. There's a new age in this present age. Don't be too haughty about riches. <clears throat> when I was growing up, uh, there was a band in Chicago. It was the first band I ever saw live at the Academy. Uh, they were a great band. But in the 60s and 70s, they had all these hits. And one of them, that you st still play today, does anybody really know what time it is? But the question, the second question is interesting. Does anybody really care? I, I mean, do we care what age we're at? I mean, do we care that this is a present age? It's a, the warning with wealth is it cannot, it cannot bring you what you most need, which is love, value, acceptance, belonging. It, it can't add to your spiritual development. It can't add to your relational joy. It can't solve the tragedies. We're all one phone call away from a disaster, and, and money can't change that. You can't even take it with you. I mean, in chapter 6, verse 7, in this book, he says you came into the world with nothing, and you're going to leave with nothing. Well, the warning with wealth is that it can easily supplant your trust in God with trust in wealth. We begin to think because our wealth is increasing, our income is increasing, our homes are getting larger, that somehow it's insulating us from the difficulties of this present evil age. And we're fools to go that direction. Uh, Jesus warned us in, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, you hear and understand that, but in your mind you're thinking, but I can uh, but he's saying you can't. You cannot serve God in money. We even print it on our coinage and our dollar bills, right? In God we trust. So there's a great threat to God. So wealth comes with a warning. And here's the warning. I think that how we handle wealth becomes a key indicator or an index of our spirituality. To the degree that you think about it to the, the way that you spend it, the way that you talk about it, the way that you save it, the way that you worry about it. All those may indicate more about what you believe about God than your own confession of faith does. Maybe it's a time that we repent. Maybe we ought to repent for putting more hope in it than it should have. Maybe we ought to repent for thinking that, in fact, it can do more for me than it can. Maybe we ought to repent of our clinging to it or longing for it. I don't want you thinking that God hates the rich at all. He doesn't hate the rich. You know, the interesting story in Mark chapter 10, 
in Jesus' ministry, there is a young man who was quite wealthy, and he came up to Jesus. And he must have heard Jesus preach, because he came right up to him, and he knelt down, and he said, he pleaded with him, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him some commands that he ought to have followed. And the young man says, well, I've kept those. I've kept those since my youth. Now, maybe there was youthful exuberance in him. You know, maybe he was overshooting what he was able to do. But listen to what Jesus does. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You know, it's, the phraseology in Scripture is so incredible. You fly right over these things. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him. Th this young man, earnest, perhaps overstating his own righteousness, but he loved him. Jesus loved this rich man. And then he said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was clinging to, he went away sorrowful. You know, what that reminds us is that it isn't that God hates the rich at all. No, the rich are uniquely susceptible to be blind to their need for Christ, for the gospel. We just think we have what we need. <clears throat> Our lives are comfortable. They're stable. They're wonderful. We don't see the same need. We feel healthy. We feel righteous. And, and, and what he's saying is, no, the rich need the gospel just like the poor. You know, if you were to continue reading the story in the 10th chapter of Mark, uh, the man leaves disheartened, and then the apostles say to him, well, then who, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. God can thread a needle with a camel. God can save the rich. He can do it. But, but we are called to be warned right here. We're to be warned. To what degree are we trusting in riches? To what degree are we trusting in our influence, our position? I, I mean, all of us here. Now, you know, people often say, well, Tom, why don't you have an altar call? Well, the reason we don't do altar calls here every week is because it tends towards decisionism. It tends towards emotionalism. But I do call you every Sunday to faith. Some of you who are in the faith, I'm calling you to greater trust. I'm calling you to exercise your faith. I'm calling you to trust in God for the things that you need, not looking to the bank account or the balances that you carry. I'm calling you to ask and invite yourself into that, into that criticism of your soul of, am I trusting too much in the wealth that I have? But I'm also calling for those who are here who are not Christian. <laughs> you know, the way to enter Christianity is not simply coming to church. It's not simply reading the Bible. It's beginning to believe that I can only approach God through his son. In other words, becoming a Christian is recognizing I am, I may be rich, but I'm poor in spirit. I am weak in righteousness. I need one to come and deliver me. And by faith, we trust that Christ is the one that God has sent. He's the Messiah. And that's how we enter the Christian faith. Uh, so you see here in the first verse 17, he gives us warnings. He gives us warnings. But notice the wisdom that he gives us, and that comes in the last half of 17. There's three things he gives to us. In other words, if you're wealthy, in some ways you could read this text and think 
that wealth is meaningless because it's so uncertain. You can't trust it. But Paul shows us how wealth can actually be meaningful. So he gives us three ideas, three principles. Look with me at 17. Again, he says, Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you see this? He has given to us wealth. And wealth, think beyond material terms here. He's given us these things for us to enjoy them, that we might see him as good, that we might see God as generous. He has richly, he's generously provided us all things. Now listen, Paul's not calling for asceticism. He's not calling for this, you know, kind of renouncing of the goodness of what he's given to us. He's not calling for us to deny the goodness of God in creation. You shouldn't enjoy food, you shouldn't enjoy drink, you shouldn't enjoy marriage, you shouldn't enjoy things. He's not saying that. He's not, remember back in chapter 4, Paul already blasted that. But he's also calling us to not just avoid asceticism, avoid hedonism. Hedonism is, listen, it's all mine, and it's all for my pleasure, and it's all for my good, and whatever I get is for me. If there's leftovers for others, great, but I want to make sure I get the first bite of everything. That's kind of a hedonistic lifestyle. Paul's avoiding both, and he's saying, rejoice in God who has given us these things. Don't rejoice in the things, rejoice in the God who has given you these things. Even the wealth that you have. Now, you're going to understand what I say in a minute cognitively, but I want you to understand it experientially or emotionally. God has given you wealth. For those of us who are wealthy, God has given it to you. In Ecclesiastes 5, he says, Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. God has given us a gift of wealth. I know that you've worked hard. I know that you've studied. I know you've prepared. I know you've done all that you can to be successful in whatever, you're, in whatever place of work or employment or in the home that you're in. But I want you to know that he gave you the gifts to do it. He gave you the time to do it. He gave you the breath to do it. He gave you the, the gifts to do it. That, that if we don't see our wealth as a gift from him, then, then we're going to put hooks in it, and we're going to be owners and not stewards. We've got to see it as a gift from him, and we are called to enjoy it. Now, listen, the wealth that you may have you may still be sitting there, this doesn't apply to me because I don't have two nickels to rub together. But the wealth may be in the gifts that you have, the abilities, the talents, the cheerfulness, the graciousness. Some of the wealthiest people I know don't have an abundance of cash, but they have an abundance of friends, or they have an incredible capacity to be cheerful in difficult circumstances, or they're full of faith, or they're full of joy in the midst of trouble. But even those things are gifts to you. So do you rejoice over God for what you have? Uh, would others? So if you were to ask a friend this afternoon, do you see me as a grateful person? Do you see me as a person who does rejoice and God is the giver of all these things? Or do you see me as a person that kind of takes credit for what I've been able to achieve? I had to pull up myself by my own bootstraps kind of thing. Or, or maybe you're of the more disgruntled type. 
you tend to be the Eeyore of life. You, know, you, you always tend to see things on the downside. It's half full. I don't have as much as I want. I don't have as much as somebody else. Perhaps you need to repent of that and ask others to say, what do you see me that I ought to be grateful over if you're having trouble seeing it? You know, it says in James chapter 117, it says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every gift comes from a father of lights. Do we see that? And can we think, we have Thanksgiving coming up. To whom will you be thankful? Will you give thanks to God? Should you give God thanks for your family and the things that you have? Absolutely. But will we give the giver of all these things thanks? So I think what Paul's saying is, if we do have wealth, be grateful, be rejoiced, enjoy it and give thanks to God for it. Uh, but the second thing is, that with the wealth that you're thanking God for, now we're to use it. So money is to be a servant for us. Sadly, we serve it, kind of, but it's to serve us, right? Look with me back at 17 when he says, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. It's like Paul stacks all these little phrases up. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. He's piling all these things up that those for whom God has given these things, what are you doing with them? Are they being shared with those in need? Now, I know that you cannot serve every need and fix every problem that the world has. And we've talked about this before, that law of moral proximity. Hey, you start with your families, but you don't stop there. You start with your families and you go out in those concentric circles of those for whom God has brought into your life. How can the wealth that he's given to me, and again, think beyond material terms, how can I do good to people? How can I invest? It may be with wisdom. It may be with your abilities around the home. It may be with counsel. It may be that you have a capacity to listen more. It may be that you're more cheerful than most. But how am I doing good to others? What, what level of profit are people gaining from my investment in their life? That's a question you can ask yourself. Who around me is profiting in some measure from me? I'm afraid many of us may think no one or few or my spouse or my kids. To what degree are we doing good? To what degree are you rich in good works? Now, notice he says, be generous and ready to share. I do think it involves money. I do think that those of us who have been given more, that more is required, who much is given, much is required. And I think we are called to be ready to share. Uh, as Brian got up and spoke about RHP, that's one area just right there in terms of how can we perhaps do good to others who are in proximity to us, who need help. That would be one example. There may be others. Teaching, encouraging, inviting people in, and listening to their lives. What a gift it is to listen. Everybody wants to talk. No one wants to listen. But to listen to someone? In other words, to do the how are you, but really mean it. Not just it's another form of greeting. So the first principle is enjoy these things, but then secondly, do good to others. Ask yourself, who is profiting outside my immediate context with the things that God has given to me? And then third, invest in the future. And you see this in 19 when he says, store up treasure as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of life that is truly life. Okay, this is really 
This is really big here. You know, it's giving us two lives, right? It shows us the present age. Take hold of life that is truly life. So the life we're living now is not truly the life that we're going to have. And so you see the present age, you see the new age. You see those two contained in this verse. And we're thinking that our best life is now. Or that's even what some TV preachers want you to think. How to get the best life now. Well, what he's saying is, no, there's, there's a life that's truly life. Are you looking to that in the way that you handle your resources? In other words, are you using the current things that you have for a future gain? I don't think he's speaking about buying your way into heaven like some people can buy their way into Ivy League schools. I think what he's simply saying is if we're people of faith and we know that there is a life to come that's truly life, won't this life be used as an investment that will bear the fruit of a life that's truly life? In other words, how are we operating in the decisions of our wealth today with an eye on tomorrow. This is not easy because many of the financial decisions you make are very intuitive. You're just very reactive to it. You've got money coming in, money going out. It's, it's happening at breakneck speed. We've got to stop. We just have to say, how are, like when Carol and I speak about the budget each year, you know, we form a budget. We try to agree on this. You know, how is this year going to give weight to that life? How do we manage our world so that it will it will result in that life that's truly life. So, so this is what he's saying. He's giving us warnings that don't be haughty or proud or conceited by what you've been able to achieve. And don't truly trust in them. So he warns us, but he also gives us some clear principles, the principles of, of simply rejoicing in it. A lot of times uh, we tend not to, or we tend to worry about it. We don't rejoice in it. Or we're thankful for it, but not thankful to God for it. And then secondly, how are we doing good? To what degree are others profiting from us? And then thirdly, to what degree do we look at life that's truly life? Remember back in chapter 6, verse 12, he said, take hold of eternal life. He's reminding us again, take hold of that life that's truly life. So let me just give you about six takeaways. Six takeaways Then I would ask you to begin to consider maybe even baking into the conversations you have with your friends or in your home. Uh, number one, let's just be bold and examine our lives. Let's examine what we do with our wealth. Ask God. So I don't want you just just over scrutinous. I'm not, if some of you are very, you're very particular and you're very scrupulous, and I don't want you to cut yourself into a thousand pieces. Uh, I, I want to find that balance of just examine. So we're going to ask God for grace. You know, search me, try me, see if there is any way in me. The psalmist says in Psalm uh, 139, 23, and 24, ask a friend to help you. To what degree am I grateful? To what degree am I gracious in sharing with others? Or think of it this way. If, if you knew that you would meet God at the end of this day to give a, an accounting for your stewardship of all the gifts and all the wealth and all the talents you have, would you really have a busy afternoon? Or would you really be like radical changes? Okay, you say, well, that's a little fabricated, Tom. That doesn't really work. Okay, let's just go out two years. If you knew two years from now 
that you would stand before God and have, a, have a, just an account. That's what stewards have. Owners don't account. They get to do with what they want, with what they have. Stewards are just managers, so we have to account to the one who owns. So to what degree would you make changes over the next two years? The two-year question is a little bit better because you do have to live, and, and you do have to... So, so how? And, you know, folks, I don't... Again, watch the false temptation of asceticism. You've got to give it all away. If you give it all away, you've got nothing to give. So asceticism is not the path. Hedonism is not the path. So, so ask God to help examine your soul. Am I, you may be using it very well. And praise God for that. Uh, secondly, I would remind you to celebrate what you have. Uh, to celebrate it, you know, to enjoy it. If God has given you gifts and abilities, then enjoy what he has given you and give thanks to him for it. Sometimes I hear Christians, they have a new car and they tell me, well, you know, I'm going to use it for the Lord's, you know, the Lord's purposes. Or they buy a new couch, well, I got it on sale, you know, I had to. We have to somehow defer the fact that we just got something nice and we're kind of embarrassed about it. Or we make some, well, it was, it was a loaner, you know what I mean? It was previously owned, you know, even though it's, you know, it's a 14 days previously owned. But, but we make these excuses for, don't you enjoy what he's given to you. Just enjoy him more than what he's given to you. But he, here's the deal. When I say celebrate it, I, I do want to exercise caution. There's a tension we live in. There's a tension that I cannot resolve for you. And the Bible won't either. And that is to rejoice. He tells us, Paul says, God has richly given you these things to enjoy. At the same time, we have to hold them with a degree of renunciation. There is celebration and renunciation. We have to hold things loosely. That's a tension that you, you and I just have to, it's a bit like this with life. In fact, one author kind of said it this way. He says, Christians can, therefore, adopt and recommend no single attitude towards possessions. When they attempt to understand their lives within the world of the biblical narrative, they're caught up in this double movement of enjoyment and renunciation. Uh, neither half of the movement, take it by itself, is the Christian way of life. You can't go all renunciation or all hedonism. No, trust is the Christian way of life, and in order to trust, renunciation is necessary lest we immerse ourselves entirely in the things we possess, trying to grasp and keep what we need to be secure. In order to trust, though, enjoyment is necessary, lest renunciation become a principled rejection of, of the creation through which God draws us to himself. It's a both and. I don't have the answer for you. It's that tension we have to live in. So celebration with caution. Thirdly, I would encourage you to be generous with your money. To be generous. That is, to look at increasingly being more generous. Now, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I like to share things until you get something new. And it's always hard to share the new thing because you're always afraid they're going to scuff it up or dink it up. But, but he wants to encourage generosity, particularly with money. Now, I know many of you are thinking, well, like how much should I be giving away? I don't know. The scriptures don't call us, at least in the New Testament. Well, I'll give you a number. If you want a number, John the Baptist said, if you have two coats, give one away. That's 50%. You're like, whoa, I need another number. You got another number in there? <laughs> I don't want that number. Well, that's one number for you. 
But, but, but the scripture says give, give without compulsion. He gives us a principle. He says, if you sow generously, you'll reap generously. If you sow miserly, you're going to reap miserly. And that makes sense, right? If you're a farmer and you have 100 acres and you plant one, you'll get one acre. Uh, so, so there's an idea. Ask God to what degree. Some of you have made choices and purchases and you've put yourself in financially tough straits. It's hard for you. You may, your heart may want to move with greater generosity and you really don't see it. And I've talked to people, I said, well then give more of your time. Then teach, then, then grab a class and, and teach or encourage others or, or, or give to God out of the other abilities that you have while you get your finances in order. Now, C.S. Lewis probably, it probably answers the question of how much should I give the best. He says this, I don't believe I can settle how much you ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits don't at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be the things we want to do but cannot because our giving expenditures exclude them. But this is an area that I would ask you to speak to God about and, and that you would speak to one another if you have the courage to do that. Uh, but don't just be generous with your money. Many of us can strike a check and, and mean it, but it doesn't impact us. Be generous with your time. Be generous with Some of you are so gifted in listening or thinking or the wisdom you offer or just the talents you have around a home or automobiles or a capacity to think through the difficult issues in life. To what degree are you investing those in others? You know, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, actually, in chapter 2, uh, chapter two verse 10. He says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. So God has literally prepared things for you to walk in. Ask him to know what those things are and that circumstantially he would lead you in them. So be ready to share with others of yourself, particularly your time and particularly your ability to listen and encourage. And then, then I would also say move to simplicity. Fifth, move to simplicity. Uh, this isn't a Marie Kondo Christian you know, kind of approach, decluttering of things. It just means that as your income in life increases, or as your income increases, it doesn't mean your lifestyle has to increase at the same pace. You know, John Wesley was a classic example of this, that his income, I, I think, went up somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000%, and yet he lived on the same amount of money his entire life. Uh, so so it doesn't, we can remain simple. Remember, your citizenship is in heaven, it's not on earth. So there is a, a simplicity, a consistency that will help us not let our wealth overwhelm us. And, and then last, I would ask you just to keep the gospel central. Look with me back at verses 20 and 21. Paul wraps up the letter. He says, O Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, that Greek word you is in the plural. The letter was always meant to be read to all of us. It was written to Timothy, but it was written to Timothy to be read to all. So that both parties, Timothy would know what to do, and the church would know what to do because of what Paul is telling Timothy to do. So it's for all of us here. 
to keep the gospel central. You know, you probably remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, he said the same thing. He told him to guard, to keep that gospel central from the controversies in irreverent Babylon. Here he says he ends in the same way that the gospel has to guard the gospel. The gospel doesn't need to be guarded, per se, as if it's subject to, you know, the the ways of men or women. No, guarding it means to proclaim it, to love it, to enjoy it, to keep it central. To keep it central in the life of the church. To keep it central in, the, in your own personal life. And, and th- this really leads us to the table here. You know, the gospel is even seen in this last call. You know, for those of us who are rich, to be willing to share, uh, to become poor, as it were, that is a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of the table. Uh, let me remind you of a passage. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and he said in, ch- uh, in chapter 8 of the second letter, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's kind of a similar thing. That as we look at this table, we see this table is filled with riches that are, that are incalculable. Uh, not gold or silver. It's uh, fake silver and fake gold when you come up here. It's not the real deal. But, but it's filled with riches of forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption. The riches of Christ himself becoming poor. In other words, he took on flesh. He was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He took upon himself our sins and our shame and our guilt. All those things that you perhaps have long forgotten or want to forget, he took them upon himself. And his body was broken as the elder breaks the bread. It's to remind you that his body broke when yours didn't. And his blood was shed. He was establishing a new covenant. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It has to be repeated every year. But it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And the covenant that he established is that all who come to the Father through the Son will be forgiven, adopted, accepted, and reconciled. But it's only through Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved. And so you see the riches here are riches for those who are poor of spirit, those who understand we're burdened, we're broken, we're needy. We need one to come from heaven to save. We can't do it ourselves. We can't band together. We tried that in the Tower of Babel. It did not work. We cannot amass ourselves, educate ourselves, socialize ourselves such that we can somehow reconcile ourselves to God. He had to come. He who is rich, who enjoyed full pleasure with the Father, took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's really what this table's about. That broken body, that shed blood. So so let's take a moment and just uh, ready our hearts to come forward to the table here. You can see we're doing it differently. We made this announcement at the member meeting. Before, let me just remind you before we go to a moment of, of reflection. We'll be coming forward again and you'll be coming and you'll take the bread offered from the elder and then you'll take the cup uh, and, and 
consume the bread and then consume the cup and then we ask you just take the cup back and put it in the little circular thing in, in the row in front of you. You'll see it there where those wires are. Um, but, but I want to take a moment uh, and have us pause. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns the church. He says, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. What does he mean by this? Um, unworthy manner would be a, a cavalier, ambivalent. Or perhaps, this is a Christian meal. This isn't for those who, who find Christianity pleasurable. It's a Christian meal. It's for those who have seen Christ alone is the way of salvation. It's those who have been baptized, declaring it to the world, that yes, I'm a follower, and it's been confirmed by the church. It's a very public event with the people that you live with and worship with. And then it's also for those who are at peace, trying to reconcile trying to walk without conflict, seeking to be one with one another. Uh, it's for those. Some of you should not come up. Perhaps you're not a Christian, or perhaps you're struggling in life right now. Can I ask you that if you don't, remember, it's not for the perfect, it's for the penitent. It's for those who are confessing, and that's what we're going to do in just a moment. Uh, but if you don't come up, then I would just ask you to consider this time as a gift and ask God for grace and wisdom to understand, perhaps even appeal to God for deliverance and mercy. So let's take a moment now and just silently confess and prepare our hearts to come forward. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.